morning. Good morning, church. I hit the unmute button. Good. All right. Uh, well, this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 6. So if you go ahead in your Bibles, we're going to need them today. We're going to be uh, going through a few scriptures, but Acts chapter 6 is right after Acts chapter 5. Uh, so if you're looking for it, that's where you'll find it. And did I hear correctly that today's Margot's birthday? Is today your birthday? All right. Margot's turning 27 years old today. So we're going to sing an encounter favorite to Miss Margot this morning. If you know it, sing along. This is your birthday song. It isn't very long. Hey! We love Margot and just the part of our church family that she's been over the years and the way that she loves uh, everyone, especially the youth. Me as the youth leader, I've seen you uh, even before I was the youth leader, that you were there uh, giving your time and your life uh, to love them. So we appreciate you and you love you, Margo. Happy birthday. Uh, well, we're in Acts chapter 6 this morning. Uh, thanks for being here today where you lost an hour of sleep on time, uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, as they say. Uh, my watch, funnily enough, stopped working this morning. Uh, I woke up this morning and looked at it, and it was just like, I'm not doing this. I'm over this. So my watch gave out, uh, but you all are here. So good job uh, being here on a day where we lose an hour of sleep. Uh, well, we will be uh, in Acts chapter 6. Uh, hopefully by now you are there. And uh, we've been journeying through the book of Acts together. We've seen the early church uh, where Jesus uh, uh, gave his final instructions to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. And he gives them this task and they go and they wait for this promise of the Holy Spirit. And we see that spirit come. And the church grows as the gospel is proclaimed. We see the early church, how they, how they loved one another and lived with one another and gave to one another and made sure that their needs were taken care of. We've seen how the church faced persecution. Uh, it was a very unpopular message they were teaching that you are sinners and you need a savior. No one wants to hear that. But they heard it and we see as a result of the disciples' boldness that even in the face of persecution, the church has been growing and growing rapidly. And so we find ourselves in Acts chapter 6 uh, as that church is continuing to grow. And this is where uh, we step into the story. Uh, I'll be reading verses 1 through 7 uh, this morning. So follow along in your copy of God's word. So in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so the twelve, they gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to the prayer and ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man of, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, uh, Nicomor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, those of us who are 
uh, parents, especially parents to more than one child, have experienced something that I've experienced and my wife uh, and I have experienced together. I remember when we had our first son, Aiden, uh, and almost 12 years ago now, wow, uh, when we had our first son, Aiden, just the, um, how excited we were, but then when we made it home, we, were, we had this thought of like, they just gave us a kid, and they trust us to keep him alive. Like, we've never done this before, right? We were filled with terror. How are we going to do this? And we were so nervous about every little hiccup or cough or sneeze or anything that happened. We, we thought, well, let's call the doctor right now, right? Like, every single little fever, anytime something would happen, we were nervous. We found ourselves uh, calling our mom and our dad, like, hey, uh, this is going on. What is this? It's just a diaper rash. Chill out. He'll be fine. Right? We're Googling things, going to WebMD, which, by the way, is a huge mistake if you ever are trying to diagnose yourself online. Don't do it. Um, but I remember us being just super nervous, and we'd call the doctor, go to the doctor for every single little thing. And then those of you that have more than one child, you'll know that when the second one comes, not so much. Right? You've, you've seen that rash before. You've heard that cough before. And I remember with Sophia, okay, she has a fever for a couple of days. I guess we'll take her into the doctor, right? We kind of got a little, little more experience under our belt. Third kid comes along. A fever won't really take her to the, to the doctor or anything. We've kind of learned what those fevers look like and how we should address them. Now, if her skin changes color and she turns blue, yeah, it's time to go to the doctor, right? Like we've gotten a little less uh, worried about those types of things. Uh, with our experience, and then by the time the fourth one comes, poor Arwen, no matter what, just give her a Band-Aid and some Tylenol, she should be good to go, right? Like, by the time the fourth one comes, you've seen it all, you've experienced every kind of diaper there can be, you know it's normal, it's fine, they'll be just good, right? There's something that happens when we have experience, it changes the way that we see things in the presence, in, in the present. Uh, having experience will cause us to act differently uh, than we would have than before we had that experience. And I remember my grandpa, when he was still alive, he would always say this thing, and I always thought it was him. And I Googled it, like, a couple weeks ago when I was preparing and realized that he stole it from Mark Twain. So I was going to give credit to my grandfather to honor him, but actually it's Mark Twain. Uh, but he would always say this quote, and he'd always say, a man who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. Boy, isn't that true? That guy's going to learn something. That he can learn to know. I could tell you what it's like to grab a cat by the tail and pick it up. But you have to experience to really grasp the full effect of what's going to happen to you in that moment. And the only way you can really learn that is that way. And he would always say that anytime. It's like someone's going to learn something the hard way. My grandpa would say that. And often in your life and in my life, we've probably uttered this phrase as well. But if I knew then what I know now. You ever say that? If I only knew then what I know now. Those of us that have had a little experience, I've had four kids, I've, you know, I'm, in, I'm 35 now, so like, I'm not super wise, trust me. But there's things now, man, if I would have just known that when I was 18, if I'd have known then what I know now, we say that. And I think in Acts chapter 6, what I want to point out is we kind of see the disciples having this kind of experience here. See, we have the benefit of Scripture to where we can kind of see their entire lives played out. They didn't have that at the time, but if I were there in Acts chapter 6 and I was able to, to, to be there with them or if I could cheer them on, I'd be looking at the decisions they're making in Acts chapter 6 and just cheering them on and patting them on the back and being like, good job, guys. You all have this. 
because I know how they were before. I know how they were before the Spirit of God was inside of them. I know how they uh, reacted to certain situations. And now in Acts chapter 6, we see them behaving a completely different way than they did in their past. And as we saw in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God came that Jesus promised them, there's a shift in how the disciples respond to things, how they preach, how they interact with each other. The Spirit of God coming to the disciples and dwelling inside of them changed everything for them. And so we're going to kind of go on a journey today of looking at how they are in chapter 6 compared to how they used to act before that promised Spirit of God was inside of them. And now in Acts chapter 6, how these 12 men are now living out as men who are full of the Spirit of God and what that looks like. And so we're going to kind of go on a journey. We're going to be kind of playing some ping pong back and forth. So get your Bibles ready and your bookmarks ready. But the big idea this morning, as we're going to see in the lives of the disciples together, is that when the Spirit of God is in your life, there is inward change and outward evidence. When the Spirit of God is in your life, there is inward change and outward evidence. There's something that God does in our hearts when we give our lives to Him and we receive Jesus as our Savior. There's something that happens inside of our hearts that everyone around us should notice. It should stand out to them. I love when I meet people that I knew back in high school and I tell them what I do for a living. I was a missionary for about six years and now I'm a youth pastor. They're just like, what? You? There's something that happens when Jesus changes our hearts and he saves us that should be evident to people that we see. People should notice what God is doing in our hearts. And Jesus promised the disciples before he left, that he was going to send a helper in John chapter 16. He says, I'm sending this advocate or this helper, the Spirit of God. And he actually tells the disciples, it's better for you that I'm going. I think often I thought, man, if I, if I had the Jesus right next to me like the disciples did, I'd be great at life. I don't think that's necessarily true. The disciples have Jesus next to them, and we'll see that often they get rebuked by Jesus because they make mistakes, and they don't have it quite figured out, but, but we see a difference. And when Jesus promises them in John 16 that this helper is coming, and I am going to leave. It's good for you that I leave, so he'll help you, and he'll be with you. And so we get to see that kind of play out in, Acts, in the book of Acts, and that's what we're going to look at this morning together in Acts chapter 6, and back in uh, Luke and Matthew as well the before and the after, what did Jesus mean when he told the disciples, I'm sending a helper that's going to be with you, an advocate? Well, we're going to see that together. And as I said, as we're looking at the lives of the disciples, get your bookmarks ready. Go ahead and mark Acts chapter 6. Uh, kind of have your finger in the book of Luke. We're going to be going back and forth this morning, a little ping pong in a few places today. I decided to go to a lot of places just to keep you awake, keep you alert, because I knew you were losing an hour of sleep. So here, we're going to keep you busy and have fun this morning. So the first thing we're going to talk about uh, this morning as we look at the lives of the disciples in Acts chapter 6 is that God's Spirit will lead us to love others well. It's evident how the disciples are reacting to a situation in Acts chapter 6 that the Spirit of God has led them to love 
others well. So I'll read verses 1 through 3 to kind of catch us up to, to this point. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So a little backstory on why there might be strife between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. Just so you're kind of caught up to date, caught up to speed what's going on. The believing Jews are kind of divided into two groups. There's those who remained in Judea, those who remained near uh, Jerusalem, who used the Hebrew language, uh, the Hebrew language, and they were referred to as the Hebraic Jews. Right? There was a lot of pride to be one of those groups of Jews because uh, they spoke the language that their forefathers spoke. They worshipped in the temple. They dressed the way that their forefathers dressed. They were Hebrew in every sense of the word, right? They, they exuded their, their Hebrewishness. Is that a word? Hebrewishness. And they were the ultimate, like, Hebrew, right? They, they lived in Jerusalem. They worshipped in the temple. And then there were the other group that were the, the Hellenistic Jews. And they, were, they lived amongst the Gentiles. And they often spoke Greek. And they used a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. They didn't read the same uh, scripture that the, Hebrew, the Hebraic Jews read, right? So there was a difference between them. The, the, Hebrews would say, the Hebraic Jews would say that they were Hellenizing everything, which just meant they were putting Greek culture into everything. They dressed like Greeks. They spoke the Greek language. They even read the word of God in the Greek language. And there was dissension that kind of arose between the two groups of Jews. The Hebraic Jews would pride themselves on the fact that they always lived in the land of the patriarchs and they spoke the same language as their forefathers. And on the other hand, the Hellenistic Jews from the other parts that were scattered would often be jealous and envious of the, Hebrew, the Hebraic Jews and would be made to feel like less than because they weren't living in Jerusalem and they weren't speaking the language that their forefathers spoke. And unfortunately, we see that the strife between these two groups was not automatically eliminated when they became Christians. There was still a little dissension, and we see this kind of playing out that the Hellenistic Jews and their widows are being overlooked as they're distributing food to the widows. This would have been a big responsibility in the early church. They're growing rapidly, right? The disciples are trying to figure out what this looks like because they started at a couple hundred, and now they're at a few 5,000. And so the number of people that they need to care for is growing as well. And we see this kind of play out that this certain group of believing Jew is being overlooked. And yet we see that even though the Hellenistic Jews would have been people that the Hebraic Jews would have not necessarily gotten along with or agreed with or maybe even looked down on, their response is that they immediately put a plan into action. We see them, they get the disciples, they get this word that the Hellenistic Jews, they need help. They didn't say, well, if they would just be more Hebrew, we'll take care of them, right? Ah, but we don't have time for them. We have enough trouble here in Jerusalem, right? There's enough on our plates here. 
No, we see that immediately these people that are being overlooked, that they immediately put a plan into action. We see that in verses 3 and 4 play out. Okay, they hear the word. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put some people in charge of this. Right? They have a lot going on. They even mentioned we need to study the word. We need to be teaching the word because the church is growing. They have a big responsibility on their plate. And so they put a plan into action immediately. They don't wait. They don't make people jump through hoops. They don't tell them it's going to be a little more difficult. You know, you know, they're kind of the Hellenistic Jews anyways. Like, let the, let the Gentiles take care of them. No, they immediately put a plan into action. And we see that they're loving others well, even those that they wouldn't necessarily agree with on all fronts. They immediately go to help them. Their response is one of love. And now let's look at how the disciples would have responded before to people that were different than them or that didn't treat them fairly. Uh, Go to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we'll read that together. We're going to kind of go back in time here. Luke chapter 9. And I'll be reading verses 51 through 55. So Luke chapter 9, 51 through 55. We see Jesus traveling throughout the land, healing people, teaching people. This is happening in the midst of Jesus' ministry. We read in verse 51 of Luke chapter 9, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. So they didn't like where Jesus was going because the Samaritans didn't really like people that were from Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Man. But Jesus turned and he rebuked them. And they went to another village. So here we see the disciples before the Spirit of God is dwelling inside of them. When they have this, these people that they don't necessarily agree with, these Samaritans that they were raised to look down on, they weren't quite as good as them, right? They didn't worship God the same way that they did as, Jeru- as Jews from you know, Jerusalem, as, as, the real, as real Jewish people. And we see their response when, whenever you know, it doesn't work out and they see that they're re- receiving a little opposition, they immediately say, Jesus, do you want us to just call down fire from heaven and destroy them huge difference you see the difference here there's the before and after right they're not worth the fight jesus let's just let's just destroy them and thankfully jesus was there and he rebukes them you see that he rebukes them how different how much different they are now with the spirit of god there's not a hint of discrimination in acts chapter 6 they don't They don't try to make them jump through hoops even though they're different than them. They immediately address the problem that was presented to them and they help out. No delay. What would be something similar in our lives that we would face as followers of Christ? Are there people that are different than us that we look down on maybe in our hearts? Maybe we wouldn't say it out loud, but we, we do look down on certain groups of people. Maybe we think we're better than a certain group of people because our church does things this way and your church does things that way. Do we write people off? 
Or do we have the mark of, of having the Spirit of God in us where our response to someone who is different than us or even frustrating towards us is one of love, is one of compassion? The Spirit of God will cause us to love other people well regardless of who it is and regardless of the situation that we find ourselves in. We have a huge, a huge opportunity as followers of Christ to stand out. To stand out amongst the rest of the world today in the way that we love each other. When we love the people that the world wouldn't expect us to love, the people that are considered to be unlovable, when we do that, we stand out. God, people take notice of Christ in our lives. And we choose to love people who are difficult to love. So are we, are we showing in our lives that we've been changed in our hearts to the point where God's spirit is leading us to love others? Well, do people see that when they look at our lives? And the second thing we'll look at that we see in the lives of the disciples in Acts chapter 6 is that God's spirit, it will guide us and God's spirit will give us confidence. So in verses 3 and 4, of Acts 6, we saw that. I'll read it again. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. We see a confidence in the disciples where they just made a decision. They didn't have to have, you know, all right, guys, let's, let, let's spend the next five hours debating about how we should take care of this. There was, a, there was an immediate, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get these guys together. We're going to make sure that they're full of the Spirit. We're going to make sure that they're trustworthy people, and we're going to put them in charge. And then we ourselves, we're going to continue to stay in Scripture because people are coming to us in droves, and they need to hear the Word of God. And so they kind of, they begin to um, um, delegate, right? We see this delegation take place, and there's a confidence in, in their decision. We're, this is what we're going to do. They didn't say, do you, think, do you guys think this is a good idea? You ever that person in your life that can't make a decision? Um, I love my wife, but hey, the worst question you can ever ask her is, where do you want to eat tonight? <laughs> Whew, that's, a, that's, a, that's a can of worms. Uh, but they're able to make a decision right away and say, here's what we're going to do. They have a confidence that was not always there. Because remember, the church is growing. They're over 5,000 people now. This is a big responsibility they have. There's people that are being overlooked. We're trying to take care of the widows as we've been instructed by our Savior. And we have this problem where there's a whole group of them that are being overlooked. And now they're presented, this church of over 5,000 now, these guys, they're told, hey, here, there's an issue. And they're immediately able to step in and solve it. It wasn't always that way. It wasn't always that way. Journey with me back to Luke chapter 9. Let's go back to Luke chapter 9 in verse 10. And let's look at how the disciples responded before to a situation that was brought to them also with about 5,000 people and what their response to this situation they found themselves in was. And we'll see how it's different. So Luke chapter 9, verse 10. It says, When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done, and then he took them with him, and they withdrew themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it, and they followed him. And he welcomed them, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who needed healing. And late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Lord, 
send the crowds away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a very remote place here. And he replied, you give them something to eat. And they answered, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. So the disciples are with Jesus, and they kind of withdrew. And Jesus has amassed a following of people. He's been going from place to place and teaching things that people had never heard before. And so he was gaining in popularity. And so Jesus goes to kind of get away, and people catch wind of it, and they follow him. People were hungry to hear the message. People were, were desperate for healing, and they were going after Jesus. So he had massed a crowd of people around him. And 5,000 plus follow him to this place in Bethsaida. And he is teaching them. And as the day is going on, the disciples are noticing people are hungry. They don't have anywhere to rest. Send them away, Lord. Get them. We we, this is a problem. We don't have the ability to fix this. They even say, well, we only have this much food, Lord, we, unless we buy food for them, right? They have no idea how to feed all of these people when Jesus tells them, feed these people. Their initial reaction when they realized people were hungry and in need was to send them away. They didn't say, let's take care of this. Lord, there's people that need food. Let's make some decisions right now and take care of them. Their response was, Lord, there's a big problem here. Can we just have them all go away now? Anybody else ever kind of put your responsibilities back <laughs> and say, I'll handle this tomorrow? We see a huge difference we have no idea how to handle this. This is too much. Send them away. And yet in Acts chapter 6, and not to mention in Acts chapter 6, as they're making these decisions where they're saying, this is what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to take care of these, uh, these, these uh, widows that have been neglected and they've been overseen. Here's how we're going to take care of them. We're going to do exactly this. Not to mention as they're having confidence to make these decisions, They've grown from a couple hundred to over 5,000. They're in the midst of facing persecution, being jailed, having the religious leaders breathing down their neck. Responsibility is mounting day by day as people are being added to the church. They're all, all going through all of this, and yet now they're being led by the Spirit. Now the promised helper that Jesus promised them would come is with them, and they're able to step into this situation with confidence, confidence that only the Spirit of God could bring them, and they're making wise decisions as they're being led by the Spirit. It's so obvious in their lives. We read in Acts chapter 2 uh, a couple weeks ago when they were filled with the Spirit and speaking in all these different languages that people accused them of being drunk, and Peter gets up, right, and he preaches to all of these people with boldness. He calls them out. Jesus, the one that you handed over to be crucified, right? Like, he was, they, he proclaims the gospel to all these people boldly in front of everybody without fear of what it was going to cost him, right? Boldly stands up and he preaches the gospel to these people that so desperately needed to hear it. Peter came a long way to stand up in Acts chapter 2 boldly proclaiming the gospel and go back to Luke. Let's see how Peter used to walk before he had the Spirit. Luke 22. Fast forward just a hair in the book of Luke. We'll be in 54, um, Luke 22, 54 through 
62. I told you we're flipping a lot today. Luke 22, 54 through 62. This is Peter before the Spirit of God was inside of him. So then seizing, so Jesus has been arrested. So then seizing him, they led him away and they took him to the house of the high priest. And Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, he sat down. And they sat down together. Peter sat down with them. And a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight, and she looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. And Peter denied it. He said, woman, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. And Peter replied, man, I am not. And about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this guy, this fellow was with him, for he's Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word that the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. We see Peter before he had the Spirit of God that came to him in Acts chapter, six, or Acts chapter 2 and dwelled inside of him, that Peter had confidence. Because if you remember, at the Last Supper, Peter told Jesus, when Jesus told him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, Peter said, never, not me. Peter was confident, but he had false confidence. He had false confidence because his confidence was in his own ability and his own self and going to be able to, I would never do this, Lord. Even it cost me everything, I would never do that. And yet we see when, when the fire is put on him, he follows from a distance. He denies that he even knew Jesus, let alone that he had given up everything to follow this man. Peter denies he ever even knew him. He says, I don't know it. Three times he says it. That false confidence fails him in that moment. And what a difference we see in Peter in Acts chapter 2. We're now in the midst of people that could easily have him arrested and begin to persecute him. Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2 and boldly proclaims the gospel because he's full of the Spirit of God. God gave him the confidence and the boldness that he needed because now Peter, when he's preaching, has the Spirit of God inside of him. The Spirit of God will guide us and give us confidence that we wouldn't normally have. The question I have is, where do we lack the Spirit's guidance in our life? Where do we lack a confidence in our lives? Are we people who live out our testimonies and teach the gospel to others that need to hear it? Or do we cower back? Are we afraid of what they're going to think about us? Are we prepared to share our testimonies? As we've been talking in our discipleship classes every Sunday morning at 9, we've been talking about this. But are we being led by the Spirit? I remember the first time, I think it was, it's been seven years, I think, that uh, when we, we worked in a, a missions organization called YWAM, and I, my job was to lead high school students on mission trips, and it was the first time I was leading a foreign mission trip with, I, I, I don't know, around 100, we had like two waves of, of, uh, of groups that came in, and it, it was the first time I had ever led a foreign mission trip with high schoolers and all that. And I had been trained, and I had gone, and I had done a scouting trip, and made all the plans, had my notebooks full of pages full of notes on what I was going to do. The calendar was ready. Everything was written out, and then we got there, right? We got there, and nothing worked the way it should have. 
the plans that we made were falling through. Uh, I was a nervous wreck, and I was trying to figure out how everything was going to fit together. And I was the leader, right? I was the guy that was waking up every morning saying, good morning, guys. Today's going to be a great day. And inside I was going, everything is falling apart. We lost power. Okay, this was the same year that Encounter came to Mexico with uh, Karis. I was leading that trip. We didn't have power for days because the power had gone out and they didn't know how to fix it. Uh, there was a problem with the power lines. And so I'm about to receive a group of like 70 kids from high schools all across the United States with no power in the place that we're staying. No lights, nothing. And it was like kind of a big deal, right? I was freaking out. I was panicking. How are we going to do anything? Because most of the people that were arriving were arriving at night. So I had went and bought flashlights for all of our group and lanterns. And they were, they were ready to go and give everybody a tour of the place by candlelight. Like, we, I didn't know what else to do. And I was in full-on panic mode. And about 30 minutes before Encounter showed up, before Karis's van came, the lights came on. Oh, thank God, lights came on. It was awesome. But everything on this trip seemed to be falling apart. Nothing was going according to plan. And I was a nervous wreck. I would talk to Karina, and I'd be like, I don't, I don't know what they want from me. I can't hold all of this together, right? Everyone needs help. This, this translator didn't show up, and I'm, I've translated for 12 hours today, and I'm trying to plan lunch and dinner and breakfast, and this, this person's allergic to peanuts, so I can't go and do peanut butter and jelly today, so now I need to run and do all these things and figure all this stuff out, and then this person wrecked one of the vans, so now I've got to go figure that out, and I've got to do all these things, and the lights went out, everything. There was, <laughs> there was no hot water. Like, everything that could have gone wrong, it seemed like it was going wrong, and I was in full-on panic meltdown mode, and I was losing it. And I remember having conversations. Randy was there. I told Randy I was going to tell an embarrassing story about Randy today, but I'm not, I don't have an embarrassing story. Randy was a rock. Randy was the guy that was kind of like, chill out. <laughs> it's all going to be okay. And I remember one time, Randy, we were, we were having one of our staff meetings, and I was trying to figure out all this stuff. And Randy had asked me, like, have you prayed about that? And I just brushed it off so quickly, right? I'm like, Randy, seriously, that's what you're going to come at me with? Have you prayed about, do you, do you see the list of things that are on my plate? Like, prayed about it. I don't have time to pray about it. I slept three hours last night, Randy. I have no idea what you're talking about, right? And then I had a conversation with Karina, and she said the same thing. Have you prayed about it? And I'm like, well, you guys stop. Stop. And there was one night, probably one, two o'clock in the morning, I had stayed up late fixing stuff that was going wrong and figuring it out, and I was at my wit's end, and I had this conversation with Karina, and I was like, I'm done. I have to leave. I'm just going to put Randy in charge. He seems to know what he's doing. And Karina was like, well, just pray. Just pray about it. And so I took it to the Lord, and I, all the things I'd been carrying, all the frustration I was facing, and I just laid it out on the table. And I said, God, I can't do this. I am just one guy who's never led a foreign mission trip before with the high schoolers. I have my plate overwhelmed. Everything's falling apart. I don't know what to do. And I prayed about it. And I just laid it out before the Lord. And I remember there was something that happened that night. I slept probably four hours. But it was th there was just this, the next morning when I woke up, this peace that I had. And the difference was I was allowing, finally, 
the Spirit of God to lead me instead of being led by my own ability to check off all the things that were in my notebook and figure out things and put out fires and be the leader that everyone needs me to be, I realized I was broken and I needed help. And I went to the Lord, and when I began to be led by the Spirit, the, the, the situation didn't change, right? I was still in Mexico leading a group of people, and there were still fires to be put out every single day. I still was barely sleeping, and yet what changed and made all the difference in the world was that I was like, okay, God, I'm going to let you lead. I'm going to let you lead. I'm going to take all these things that I can't control, and I'm going to put them in your hands, and I'm going to allow you to be the one who leads me. And it made all the difference in the world. It was that moment, and that, that's a valuable lesson I learned on that trip. It was, I need to be led by the Spirit of God. I need to get my confidence from the Spirit of God because my false confidence, I could stand up as the leader and go, everything's great. That's going to fail me. I have to know that it's great because God is in control and that God, His Spirit, is guiding me. That's what needs to bring my confidence. And finally, the last thing we'll see in the lives of the disciples in Acts chapter 6 is that God's Spirit... God's spirit inside of us will eventually bring growth and flourishment. God's spirit will bring growth and flourishment. We read in Acts chapter 6, as the disciples are reacting to a situation that's put ahead of them, they make a plan, and verses 5 through 7, we see the result of that plan. This proposal, it pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, uh, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, what, what names? And Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. And so, here's, here's the great part, verse 7. And so, because of this, because of the way that the disciples are being led by the Spirit, making decisions, getting their confidence, loving others well, because they're full of the Spirit of God, because they're living lives that operate like this, the Word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests even became obedient to the faith. God's spirit will bring growth and flourishment. We see that as the disciples are receiving uh, you know, the bad news, essentially, from what's happening with the Hellenistic Jews, and they are operating the Spirit. They choose to love them, even though they're different than they are. They choose to immediately respond in love, and they act with confidence that is coming from the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them, and they make a plan, and they decide, here's how we're going to fix this thing that is broken and wrong. We see that as a result of the disciples living as people who the Spirit of God is evident in their lives, that the word of God spreads, that we see growth and we see flourishment. Now, let's go back to Luke chapter 9. We'll rewind in history. Luke chapter 9 in verse 46. Luke chapter 9 in verse 46. I'll read 46 through 50. Here's the disciples before the spirit of God was dwelling inside of them. So an argument started among the disciples to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. And then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is the least among you all is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, 
For whoever is not against you is for you. We see infighting and bickering and positioning happening amongst the disciples. Who's the greatest? They're looking out for themselves. They don't have, that's not going to amount to growth at all. When you're self-focused and it's how can I look out for myself and me and number one. And that's what we see them doing here. And then we even see that John points out that, hey, there's other people that aren't one of us 12 helping people in your name. And I think they're expect, like, that's messed up, right, Jesus? And his response to them is, don't stop them. What are you doing? They're on the same team, right? They were so self-focused on themselves. There's no growth in that. And then lastly, if you look at Matthew 20, another glimpse of the, the minds and the hearts of the disciples before Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit was dwelling inside of them. Matthew 20, 20 through 28. We see that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, their mother goes to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, she asked a favor of Jesus. Jesus says, what is it that you want? And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus' response is, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink of? Yeah, we can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup to sit at my right or left. It's not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And when the ten, the other ten disciples, heard this, they were indignant. They were mad. They were worked up with the two brothers. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Whoever wants to become the great among you must be a servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave jesus or just as the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so we see again the disciples jockeying for position this time it was one of the disciples mothers that came and stepped in to help her two sons hey jesus this is what i'd like the other disciples hear about it they're mad a fight breaks out jesus has to rebuke them and teach them this is actually what the kingdom of god looks like guys you're getting it wrong And we see that before the Spirit of God was dwelling within them, when it came in Acts chapter 2, that the disciples are self-centered. They're not worried about building the kingdom of God. They're worried about building their own kingdom. Jesus has a teaching moment and shows them what the kingdom of God is actually like. And in Acts chapter 6, we see that they've gone from building their own kingdoms to building the kingdom of God, and as a result, being led by the Spirit, full of the Spirit of God, that the church grows, that the church flourishes as a result of them living in a way where they're being led by the Spirit, their motivation has changed. Their motivation has changed. What's our motivation? Do we ever have a problem with someone else, other believers, because they do things differently than we would like? When someone else is flourishing in their life, do we rejoice with them? Or do we get frustrated that we don't have what we want in our lives? Are we focused on our own kingdoms? Or are we focused on building the kingdom of God? What is our motivation? I think one of my heroes uh, in history that I love to read about is this guy named William Wilberforce. And if you don't know who William Wilberforce is, I'd implore you to go and find out about this guy. There's a book written about him called Amazing Grace, also a movie that was made, but like all things, the book's better. (laughs) 
and encourage you to go and read about him, but just a brief glimpse of his life was he was born into a wealthy family in the, in the 1700s in England. He was born into a wealthy merchant family and uh, raised, you know, with everything he needed. He never had need. Uh, he had a, a, a really good, uh, as far as finances go, uh, compared to a lot of the, uh, the country at the time. His father dies when he's nine years old, and so when he's nine years old, his mom kind of sends him with his aunt and his uncle to kind of help her out and raise William, and they accept him into their house, and they're Christians. And so as a result of William moving into his aunt and uncle's house, he becomes a Christian, and he starts following the teachings of Jesus, and he starts going to church with his aunt and his uncle. And while he was with his aunt and his uncle, he had the opportunity to meet such men as George Whitfield, the great evangelist of the time, and also a guy named John Newton, who was a former slave trader and converted to Christianity, and he's the guy that ultimately wrote the song Amazing Grace. And so William has this opportunity, being in his aunt and uncle's house, to experience these people and hear the stories of Jesus, and he's, he becomes a follower of Christ, and when his mother catches wind of this, she has a problem with it. Her son can't be one of those crazy Christian people, right? So she immediately, she does not like his, uh, I believe the word she used was his Christian enthusiasm. She did not like it. And so she set a plan to reverse the course. And over the course of the rest of, of the years leading up to him becoming an adult, she put that plan into place. And William grew away from the Lord and started to walk away from the things of the Lord and step into the things of the world. And by the time he's an adult and he goes to college in Cambridge in 1776, his Christian uh, upbringing is all but a thing of the past. He's not walking out anything anymore. He's set all that stuff down. And yet William is a really attractive, handsome, witty uh, great at talking, uh, people like him, he's full of charisma, he's hospitable, he speaks eloquently, not to mention he's wealthy. And so all the things in William's life were just, just the way it needed to be, and everything seemed to be going great for him, and he displayed the characteristics of a natural leader. And he had friends from very uh, high places in government at this time as well. And when he graduates uh, out of Cambridge, he eventually becomes a politician himself because he's so full of charisma. He's so good at speaking and giving speeches, and they even mention that he's a great singer, right? He has everything going for him, so he becomes a politician. And later on in life, William will say that the first few years that I was in Parliament, it was all about me. And so he's living this life that's all about him. It's for his own vanity. He wants to look good, be the person that everyone loves and likes. And he's enjoying this. He's gambling and partying and drinking and has all the girls that he could ever want, right? He's living this rock star life in the 1700s. And yet, he finds himself empty. He finds that it's not giving him what he needs, that there's still something lacking in his life that actually... It's not all it's cracked out to be, and, he, and he, doesn't, he doesn't like the place that he finds himself, and so he decides to take a break and get away, and he goes, to, he goes to travel Europe, and he invites one friend, his friend turns him down, he invites someone else, and they also do the same, and through God's grace, there's this guy that ends up going with him named Isaac Milner, who's a brother of a former teacher. Kind of get the sense that William's just desperate to not be alone on this trip. Anybody that'll go with me. Well, here's the cool thing. 
Isaac Milner was a believer. And he goes on this trip with William Wilberforce and William is encouraged by Isaac and he gives his life back to the Father. And he begins to follow the teachings of Jesus and he begins to pray every single day and the Spirit of God begins to grow inside of his life and he begins to act and treat people differently. He stops gambling and drinking and doing all the things that he had done before. He's a new guy. And when he first kind of goes back to London, he initially says, I don't want to be into politics anymore. Politics is not Christian. This is not lining up with the way that I want to live. And he's encouraged. He's encouraged that, hey, you need to stay in politics and use this platform that God's given you. He's encouraged uh, by some of his friends. John Newton was one of them. The guy that wrote Amazing Grace says, hey, God's put you in this place. For such a time as this, you've been led here, William. Now that you're following God, you're being led by his spirit, use that in Parliament. And so the Lord leads him through meeting several people and gives him a heart about ending the slave trade. Because at the time, the slave trade was booming business. Booming business. 50,000 people being plucked from their homes and loved ones every single year and sold as slaves. They were treated like cattle. It was just a way to make money. It was despicable. And God gives William a heart for this, to end it, to stop it. And so with his friends and, 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 and just like different uh, uh, acts they put in to, to vote, he begins to teach against this and proclaim the truth that, that in God's sight there is uh, no difference between the slave and the white man. And he begins to, to press parliament to abolish the slave trade, which was a big deal. It'd be like saying, hey, tomorrow we're going to end the oil industry. No more gas available for anybody. At the time, it was unthinkable. How can we not have the slave trade? It's literally our economy. And yet he goes with this unpopular message, and he tries year after year, 1789, 1791, 1792, 93, 97, 98, 1799, 1804, and 1805. He tries over and over and over again to get them to abolish slave trade, and it doesn't work, and he keeps coming back, and he keeps getting opposition, and people are still mad at him. He's making more enemies, and yet he's being by, led by the Spirit of God, and he doesn't give up, and he perseveres. He's less focused on his kingdom. Now he's, work, he's working on the kingdom of God. And that's what matters to him. And so finally we see that he does accomplish his goal of ending the slave trade. And even later on in his life as he's sick, he still fought to have slavery completely abolished. And it happened three days before his death. His circumstance didn't change. He was still a politician. He was still right where he was before he allowed his life to be led by the Spirit of God. What changed was his motivation. He was less wor worried about his kingdom and his being focused on the kingdom of God as he's led by the Spirit. Being led to stand up for what is right and led by the Spirit of God, we saw what happened. Great growth and flourishment. Great growth and flourishment. So how do we operate like that? How do we, as followers of Christ today, operate in the Spirit of God? I think there's a huge opportunity right off the bat, for starters, that a lot of people miss out on. And I'll quote William Wilberforce uh, to kind of sum it up. He sums it up quite well. He said, of all things, guard against neglecting God in the secret place of prayer. Of all things, guard against neglecting God in the secret place of prayer. Are you spending time with God in prayer daily? 
Do you have a relationship with your heavenly father? Are you going to him for everything? Are you going to him first, not last? Just like in any relationship, just like I know the way Karina answers the phone, if she's in a good mood or a bad mood or what she needs, right? Just in a couple of sentences. How do I know that? Because I spend time with her. Because I know her. Do I know God? In a way where I'm, I'm, I'm spending intimate time with him every single day. Do not neglect the secret place of prayer. That will allow us to be in tune with what our Father is doing. And then living a life in the Spirit comes a lot easier when you're communing with Him. Another thing that we see, we have in Scripture, uh, are in Galatians. Galatians, Paul actually lays out exactly what a life that's being led by the Spirit looks like. He gives us sign or guideposts. Right? If we, it's like if you look at the dashboard, I know Michael gives this illustration, but you have a car, you're driving, the check engine light comes on, the oil light comes on, right? It makes you go, I should stop and look at this thing. Well, some of us drive with it for like five months like that, but that's another story, right? But there's, there's these warning things, and Paul gives us this list. What does a person's life look like when they're being led by the Spirit? Well, here's what their heart produces. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If I'm someone who's being led by the Spirit of God in my life, that's what my life is going to produce. If my heart produces something other than one of these fruits of the Spirit, then it needs to be dealt with. Regardless. Well, that person did something really bad to me. So I'm mad at them. I hate them. I don't have patience with them. Guess what? You're not being led by Spirit. So you need to take control of that. If my life, if my heart is producing something other than love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, it needs to be dealt with because I'm not being led by the Spirit if I have a fruit coming out of my life that's not that. Jesus told us in Matthew 12 that a tree is known by its fruit. Bad trees have bad fruit. Good trees have good fruit. Do I have these signs in my life? Is my life one of love and joy? Do I have patience with people that are extremely frustrating? Do I love people that are different than me? Am I disciplined and faithful in the secret place of prayer? Am I someone who's full of joy or do I just like to point out the negative things? Is my life marked? Do people, when they look at my life, see the fruit and recognize that the love of Christ has changed something inside of me? So I think that's a way to kind of check and look at the warning lights. Do we have lives that are doing this and producing this fruit? And as we've been working our way through the book of Acts, we're seeing what it looks like to be witnesses. We're seeing what it looks, what God's plan for the church is. And in our discipleship, our discipleship class each week, we've been seeing what it looks like to be equipped to witness to a broken world. And when God changes someone's heart, the world should see, they should be able to see that. And if God has changed your heart, and then everyone around you should be able to notice that. Uh, because uh, I think my clicker broke. <laughs> but when the Spirit of God is in your life, there's inward change and outward evidence. That was the big idea. So when we have lives that are being led by the Spirit and God's really changed our hearts, everyone around us is going to see it. And so I encourage you to, uh, every uh, Sunday morning, the next couple Sunday mornings, we still are going to meet and we've been walking out what this looks like in our lives. We are people who have had our hearts changed by God. Now, how do I take that? 
How do I take that and make it evident to the people around me? Practically, what does that look like? So I encourage you as we finish the book of Acts to, to join us in our discipleship classes as we see what it looks like in our lives uh, to, be, to have that outward evidence, that fruit when people see our lives. Uh, I'll close our time in prayer and then we'll take communion together. Oh, Father, I thank you that, Lord, you've given us the Spirit of God. And, Lord, you said that, it would, it, that it's good for us that you would leave so that we would be dwelt by the Spirit. And, God, we see the lives of the disciples and the difference that it made and how they, when they, when they were led by the Spirit, God, they loved, they were encouraged. And, God, that, you're, that there was growth in the kingdom, God, that they were worried that they focused on your kingdom. Lord, show us what it looks like in our lives to be people that are led by the Spirit of God that our life would produce those fruits of the Spirit, that other people look at us and know that we are Christians by the way that we love each other and the fruit that our life produces. Father, help us in our lives, God, to, to show that fruit, God, and to people that need to see it the most, Lord. Would you show us who those people are in our lives that need to know our story, that need to hear our testimony, that need to know what it is that you've done inside of us, God, and give us the courage to do so, to share that with others, Father. Help us to be people, God, that the evidence is overwhelming in our lives, that when people look at us, they know there's something, God, and give us the, the courage and the boldness to tell people what that is, Father. In Jesus' name.